Kevin's got a treat for us this morning. Not only a surprise. Use this mic, it's better. Let's just pray before we <laughs> abandon this man to his own resource. <laughs> because we don't want that really. We want no. it to be in the power of his, his God's spirit today. So, Father, we ask that you would come and use Kevin again for your good purposes, Lord, to bless our lives with more of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, for the last year, uh, on and off, whenever I've gone to a psalm, uh, I've been singing it. I don't mean I've suddenly joined the Scottish Presbyterians and learnt all their tunes, but I, I realise that psalms are meant to be sung. That's what they're for. So I've just said to the Lord, how do you sing this psalm? And I've launched off into a tune, and in my prayer times I've been singing the psalms to the Lord. Well, that was good. And then in all the confusion of our church, I sat down at the breakfast table and saw a little text on a picture frame that Peter Cawthorn, uh, Bronwyn's dad, uh, had given to us. And it simply said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I thought, yeah, I wonder what that would sound like if you put it to a tune. And sat at the breakfast table, I just started to hum it along. And then I rushed upstairs, I thought, I like that. And uh, I can guarantee you won't have sung this anywhere else. So it's directly from uh, Joshua 24, verse 15. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Guess what the third line is? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then you go half a verse back. Choose this day whom you will serve. So the second verse is, as for me and my house, we will love the Lord. Choose this day whom you will love. And the third one, as for me and my house, we will praise the Lord. Choose this day whom you will praise. You got the idea? It's very simple. As for me and my house, we will As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. Love the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me As for me and my house, we will love the Lord. Choose this day whom you will love. Praise the Lord. As for me and my house, we will praise the Lord. As for me and my house, we will praise the Lord. 
serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. Amen. Whoops. <clears throat> I don't say that was a moment of decision for me, but in a sense it was because I was saying to the Lord, Lord, whatever comes, I'm going to serve you. And that's what we need to do, isn't it, whenever we run into difficulties, make our decision for the Lord. So, Lord, we thank you for the book of Colossians. The riches are deeper than I can see. This is profound. And we pray that though we perhaps paddle in the shallows a little bit, we would on occasions launch out into the deep and see something of the majesty and mystery and mercy of our Lord Jesus. So teach us again from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So, day three, chapter two. Paul writes, <clears throat> I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit, and I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority in him. You were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature of the flesh, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. 
having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to religious festivals, new moon celebrations, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Oh, I, reading through it again now, I realise all the bits I've missed, you know, so there's at least two messages in chapter two, and there's a lot more than that, of course. Did you notice the changeover bit between the theological section and the practical section? Verse 16. Therefore, in, in other words, in view of all we've been teaching you, this is how you should live. And he moves from theology to practice there. So we are still in the theological section at the beginning and we move into the practical section as we go through this teaching. It is a challenge for every generation to understand and interpret the teachings of Christ. That's what we all have to do. And in this passage, we are given certain detours and distractions, things that can take us away from Christ, that seem good in themselves, that seem compatible with the faith, but they aren't the essence, they aren't the heart, they're a detour. They'll take you away from Jesus, not to him. In verse 4, they are called fine-sounding arguments. The problem with a fine-sounding argument is it's plausible. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds right. That, that could be, couldn't it? Uh, we're facing one in our church at the moment. Having read through a very lengthy consultation document, um, the argument is this. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Therefore, Christians are not under the law. Indeed, Jesus gave us another law. He gave us the law of love. You must love God and love your neighbour. Therefore, any act that is a loving act is acceptable to Jesus. That's the argument. It's actually called antinomianism. It's a heresy. 
Um, but nobody has noticed that as they've written it out. And it's also a misquote, of course. Jesus didn't just say, I've come to, fulf uh, uh, I, I've come to fulfill the law. He says, I've not come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill the law. And every Christian church has taught throughout history that the law stands as our judge. It's there to measure us. It's not there to pat us on the back and say, well done. You never have a policeman stop you as you're driving down the road at 30 and say, well done. You were keeping the speed limit. But if he's there and you are exceeding the speed limit, he will stop you. And that's the purpose of the law. It's to show us where we are going wrong. And the moral laws of God have never been abolished. Oh, it's a fine-sounding argument, but verse 8, it is a hollow and deceptive philosophy based on human tradition. And we have two options. We can follow man's wisdom or we can follow God's wisdom. And verse 9 and says, 10 say, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and we have been given fullness in Christ. And so what we need to do is go as much as we are able into the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. I think the key verse is a very simple verse here. It's not the deeply theological verses. You want to understand this passage. The key verse is verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Jesus as Lord, or Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. We were brought into Christ. We need to continue in Christ. We need to be rooted in Christ. We need to go deeper in Christ. I'm not much as a gardener, as Keith knows. Uh, I decimated his last garden when he uh, followed him at banks, you know. And the bloke after me made it even worse, so, you know. <laughs> uh, but recently I bought some plants. Mm. I bought lavender. A uh, set of, two sets of six in a little plastic package. Uh, problem is, I didn't have very much time to um, plant them when they arrived. And uh, within a few short days, sitting in their plastic packet, the roots were all dried up and shriveled. I managed to save about half of them by soaking them, uh, but the rest of the lavender, sadly, it didn't get rooted and established. And if we don't go down into Christ, like my poor lavender plants, they will shrivel. We have to go deep into him. And in order to do that, we are given four, uh, no, three actions here. Uh, the first one is we're to look back at what, he didn't say it, but this is me looking at what Paul's talking about. We're to look back at what God has done in Christ. And then we are to look round at the competing hollow and deceptive philosophies and understand them. And then we are to look up and fix our focus on Jesus. At least that's the way I see his argument working out. So that's what we're looking at today. Looking back, looking round, looking up. And bearing in mind, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. 
It's so true, isn't it? So we look back. at what Christ has done. Christianity never starts with what we have done. It starts with what he has done. Look at 11 and 12. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him, your faith in the power of God. Circumcision, of course, was very important to the Jewish faith. And they would be coming into the church and saying, if you're not circumcised, you are not a proper Christian. It was the mark of their covenant. It showed that they were God's people, that they had been separated. And the word holiness has the root idea behind it of to cut or to separate and so they had a cut in their flesh a separation that showed them to be a holy nation and and so to many Jews if you weren't circumcised well how could you possibly follow God circumcision was important but even in the Old Testament God expected it to be more than something in the flesh Deuteronomy 10 and 16 circumcise your hearts therefore and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Or Deuteronomy 30 and 6 and 7. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It wasn't just meant to be an outward thing, this circumcision. It was meant to be an inward thing. And then we are told, in him you also were circumcised not with a circumcision done by the hands of men. It isn't a physical mark. What is it? A putting away, and the NIV interprets it, but in this case it interprets it rightly, a putting away of the sinful nature. The word is flesh. So the idea behind it is that we are body, soul and spirit. We have the flesh on the one end and we have the spirit living within us on the other end and the nexus, the exchange point between the flesh and the spirit is the soul. You understand your mind, your emotions, your will, your personality, the person you are, that soul that's in between. And, and that's why he's going to go on in the next chapter to say it's where we fix our eyes. Uh, we've heard that we are to fix our mind on Jesus, that we are to look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the battle for the Christian is the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's, it's worked out. But he's saying, actually, you've got a tremendous advantage because he has put away our sinful nature. It has been cut out. I don't mean that makes us sinless, but I do mean that we are made a new creation. Something happens that is profound when we come to faith in Jesus. We are not just people that take on religion. We are people into whom is grafted the very life force of God. And he himself comes to live in us. That's why it says, in him you were circumcised. It's as we step into him. And the only way that it makes sense to me 
is to see it geographically. You, you understand? If you move from one place to another, it's a geographical move, yeah? So before we were in darkness, now we're in light. Before we were in the world, now we are in Christ. Before we were in sin, now we are in the Son whom he loves. We've moved. We have geographically moved. We've moved from lost to found. We've moved from unsaved to saved. We are changed people. And as we do, we are reborn. It says in verse 13 and 14, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. We've moved from death to life. There it is. That change of nature that goes on. Ephesians says in Ephesians 4 and 24 that we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so something of the very character of God, the holiness of God, the essence of who he is, is imprinted on our soul. And that's why when a Christian sins, it feels so bad. Because it's actually against our nature. It's against our new nature. It's not against the old nature. The flesh loves to sin. But it's against the new nature that is imprinted in us. And when we sin, we set up a tug between flesh and spirit in us that needs to be resolved. And the Holy Spirit moves from the work of comforter to the work of convictor. And he brings that conviction of sin. And we have to humble ourselves again. And what did it say? Uh, I read it before. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue. And how did we receive him? We had to humble ourselves. We had to humble ourselves before a humble God. And we had to seek that cleansing. And so the way forwards is the same way as we came in. <laughs> we have to humble ourselves and come back to God. As we received him, we continue in him. And whenever we allow the old ways of the flesh to pull us, we need to realise it's against our new nature that we're actually... Well, <coughs> what's going to happen if you continue to walk in those ways is actually you're going to put a mental stress and a psychological stress on your soul, that, that inner person, you know, your, your mind, your emotions, your will, so much so that you will either... Uh, become unhinged because sin causes insanity you'll become unhinged or you will become somebody who lives with excuses and makes a reason for your sin we've got to <clears throat> come to that place where we find in Christ full forgiveness and of course it's described here this forgiveness that we get is linked directly to the cross. He gives the two stages. He says, uh, God made you alive with Christ. Uh, that was when you were dead in your sins, 13 and 14. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations. Two stages of salvation there, forgiveness and cancelling the code. 
Obviously, they're, they're simultaneous, but nevertheless, they're described differently here. Um, we are forgiven. I thank C.S. Lewis for this one in his little book, Mere Christianity. Uh, we are forgiven by being linked to the source of life. Lewis says, um, forgiveness is not a gift that God gives out to some and withholds to other. He actually says eternal life is not a gift that he gives out to some and withholds to other. He says eternal life is, being, is given by being linked to the source of life. If you want to get wet, says Lewis, you have to get by or into the water. If you want to get hot, you have to get by the fire. If you want eternal life, you have to get by or into the one that has eternal life. And so eternal life is about being linked to the source of life. We are, and then he goes on to say, if you are linked to God, how can you not live forever? How can you not? <laughs> and if you are not linked to God, how can you not shrivel and die? It's obvious, isn't it? That's the first. We are in Christ, geographically. We've been linked to him. Just like Moses walked into the cloud of glory, and then when he breathed in, the cloud of glory went into him. <laughs> so he was in the cloud and the cloud was in him. So we enter into Christ and Christ enters into us. And we are linked to the source. But he can only do that by cancelling the debt that was against us. I, I'm sure you have read the verses in the book of Revelation uh, 20 and verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, recorded in the books. And the sea gave up her dead the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, she will be thrown into the lake of fire. They are not just picturesque words. They are salutary words. Every one of our lives has a book of our life. And that book is measured against the laws of God. And those laws stand as an indictment against us. God knows us thoroughly. He knows our motivations. He's actually a just judge and he won't punish us beyond that which we deserve. It will be absolutely just. But in Christ, all the laws that we had broken that stood against us that are written in the books are taken and they are nailed to the cross. My sin, all oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, 
my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to his cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul it is well it is well with my soul because it is nailed to the cross we don't get a picture in Colossians of Jesus nailed to the cross. We get the picture that I'm nailed to the cross. My sin is nailed to the cross. And because of that, my price is paid. We looked at it briefly yesterday. What are we saved from? Well, we're saved from the penalty of sin at the cross. The law is fulfilled in that it has been paid. The penalty is taken in Jesus. The pollution is removed from my life and I'm given a new nature that I might live in true righteousness, holiness and redemption. And then... Uh, ah, get over the page. That always helps. The power of sin is broken so that I might walk with Christ. One day, I will be saved from the presence of sin. All because it was nailed to the cross with Jesus. That's what he has done. That's it. In, in, in circumcising us, not with the outward hand of man, but with the inward change, we do something, it, it says that we get baptised. Having been baptised, you were buried with him and raised again. Uh, and the picture here, of course, is of believers' baptism, uh, not just adult baptism, uh, enacting and accepting that work that Christ has done on the inside and uh, showing it by um, that commitment on the outside. And I know there'll be many uh, pictures of baptism that we have in our mind around the conference because we're all from different traditions. But the picture here is of death to the old self, of resurrection and walking in new life in the new self. That's looking back. Let's look round. Let's try and understand these hollow and deceptive philosophies, these fine-sounding arguments that he calls unspiritual. He says, have an appearance of wisdom but lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence uh, and that could be gluttony as well as sexual sins that could be all kinds of sexual indulgence you know um, well what are these distractions to us the first one is religious festivals ceremony ceremonies and rituals verse 16 and 17 do not let anyone judge you in regard to religious festivals, numerous celebrations, Sabbath days. And these are a shadow of the things that were to come. Uh, these perhaps don't um, affect us as much as it did the people in Corinth, uh, but it has done in the past. They, of course, were being told that they had to celebrate Passover. And they had to celebrate Pentecost. They had to celebrate... Uh, the Day of Atonement, they have to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And all those were commanded by God in the Old Testament. How many festivals are Christians commanded to celebrate? The answer is none. We're not commanded to celebrate any. What we do is we stand on the foundations of these Old Testament uh, ceremonies and, and festivals, but we have the reality because it says of them that these are a shadow of the things that were to come. Again, verse 17, the reality is found in Christ. So Passover becomes Easter. Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Day of Atonement is our Good Friday. Tabernacles, well, that hasn't actually happened yet. It did for a little while when Jesus tabernacled amongst us. And it will happen again when God is with man and we tabernacle together. But the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the second coming. It hasn't even been uh, um, realised yet. These things were shadows. And a shadow has no substance. It, it, it bears relationship to that which is coming. It, it gives you a rough depiction and description of it. But it's not the reality itself. It's not the substance. And we have the substance in Jesus. <laughs> so we're not told to celebrate festivals. Is it wrong for Christians to celebrate festivals? Of course not. It's not wrong, but the difference is it's easier to go to a festival and to think you've done well than it is to build a relationship with Jesus and to walk with him. And if you never celebrated Christmas or Easter again publicly with anybody else, but you walked with Jesus, that'd be what God wanted. I don't mean, don't misunderstand, please don't misunderstand me there, you know. I think Christmas and Easter are wonderful evangelistic opportunities. I think that's what they are. And that's what they should be used for. And they are times to honour some of the depth of our faith. And to thank God for what he has done. For the deity and humility of Christ. For the sacrifice of the cross. That these should be high points. We should. Well we should celebrate them every week shouldn't we. But. It's an interesting thing. We're not told to do festivals. We are told to be rooted and established in him. That's what we're told to do. <laughs> Forgiveness does not come through festivals. It comes through the new birth. Uh, and, and in my arrogance and rudeness, when I was part of the Assemblies of God, we used to mock the Church of England because it was Christmas and Easter. You know, um, Sadly course that's not what it's about is it it's about building a relationship christianity should be a religion free community based word honoring spirit filled body of people yeah that's right yeah religion free word based no no it's in the book <laughs> if you haven't got a copy, page 31. You can get the quote there. I couldn't say it again. Okay. That was the first thing, not being caught up with the festivals and ceremonies as a way to God. How many ceremonies do we have? Two. Unless you want to count foot washing. 
We have two. Communion, baptism. And those were commanded of Jesus. We don't do communion because somebody thought it up. We do it in obedience because he said, do this until I come. It was a command of Jesus. So forgive me, especially if there's any salvationists here, but if you do not take communion, you're disobeying Jesus. Because he said, do it. In fact, if you go to the communion table, uh, to the communion service and think, well, I'm not at one with one of my brothers or sisters, so I'd better not take communion today. You're still disobeying Jesus. Because Jesus says, forgive, put it right, you know, if you have anything against anyone, leave your gift at the table, go and be reconciled to that person. Actually, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, if they have anything against you, go and put it right. It's what Joe was talking about last night. I honour you, Joe. Thank you for the walk that you have shown and the example that you give of humility and putting things right. Uh, and though we don't always remember the stories ourselves, we, we've also walked, all of us, in, in, in that in those shoes, because those are the shoes of Jesus, and we have to walk in them. Thank you. Let's move on. The second one, uh, experience. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great deal about what he has seen, and his own spiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head. The second thing that gives a detour or distraction is putting spiritual experience as the main aim. It doesn't even have to be a spiritual experience, to be quite honest. It's just experience. And nobody can accuse me of not wanting experiences. I am experientially based. It is important to me. But you see, there are several sources of experience. The world can give you experiences. The flesh can give you experiences. The devil can give you experiences. And the point about experience is every experience we have has to be measured against the unchanging word of God. Experience is subjective. The word is objective. It does not change. Either we sit over the word and judge it or under it and allow it to judge us. There is no intermediate way there and so experience is a dangerous arbiter of truth i heard a story i don't think it's true but i like it so i'll share it with you i heard of a little uh, pentecostal church uh, where a uh, they had a, a receiving meeting as it was called where people would seek to be filled with the holy spirit and one elderly lady who had not been uh, filled in uh, this way before got a real experience of god she was filled with the holy spirit and she jumped up from the pew uh, there was a chair in front of her. She put her arm on the chair and she leapt over the chair. Wonderful. She was filled with the Spirit, full of joy. What I was told is, I don't believe it was true, but what I was told was, from then on, whenever anybody was filled with the Spirit, they brought out the chair to see if anybody could jump over it. And if you couldn't jump over it, you obviously weren't filled. I don't believe it for a moment. Uh, but it's a nice thought, isn't it? You see, if we use our experience as the basis for what it means to be filled, we'd all be jumping over chairs. It's no good. But we don't base our experience on what one person says. We base our experience on what the Word of God says. In the tradition I come from, 
uh, we use three tools to help us understand scripture. We use tradition, reason and experience. But those, sadly, it is being found are unreliable tools. Tradition, we know, it, it can change. We do stand on the shoulders of those that came before. Um, that's important. We don't have to learn everything from the past. Starting from day one, we stand on the shoulders of giants. It's wonderful. Uh, but also, not everything that came before was right. You know, th there were mistakes. Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation saw the mistakes and sought to reform them. When they couldn't reform them, the church was renewed and revived. And so we stand on the shoulders. But tradition, it's a guide, but it can't be your master. Reason. Ah, yes, of course we have to bring our mind to the uh, word of God. But our reason is a very short plumb line. It doesn't get to the depths of the oceans of God's word. I, I love the saying that's attributed to St. Augustine. He says the Bible is an ocean. It is uh, deep enough for a mouse to paddle in or an elephant to swim in. And uh, sometimes we're just the mice paddling around the edge and thinking we've gone out into the depths. God is much vaster, much vaster. And our reason, our reason is fallen. And we bring our reason, and if we say, Lord, it is reasonable that I want to do certain things and, and, and that you should support me in them, we will find support in the scripture for our arguments. We can overrule the word of God with our reason and, of course, with our experience. If we look to justify our experience, we'll not get very far. The particular problem that uh, these people were facing was angelic experiences. Um, they were arguing, uh, as I explained yesterday, that God could not possibly become flesh because matter was evil and God was holy, so he couldn't become flesh. So he put out angels and demons between us and him and we had to seek these mediators between God and man. There is one God. There is one mediator between man and God. The man, Christ Jesus. That's what we need to do. We need to seek him as our one mediator. Not angels. Um, it's probably my phone that's on charge over there ringing, by the way. But nothing we can do about it. It shouldn't be ringing. There you go. Um, I won't say much about angels, except for if you walk into bookshops these days, you will find there is a popular mythology about angels. Uh, I just went on Amazon and had a quick look at some of the titles. The Angel Bible. Everything you want to know about angels. Daily guidance from your angels. Messages from your angels, healing with the angels. They were all titles on Amazon. And the idea is if an angel is able to work independently on your behalf for you is very popular. It's also rather foolish. The best book I read, and I'm sure you've read it yourself, was Billy Graham's book on angels. It's a good book. It's solid, it makes sense. And he explains that an angel is an extension of the arm of God. 
has no independent thoughts or desires, an angel would do no more or no less than God has commanded that angel to do. It's an extension of the arm of God. That's what an angel is. Uh, we also know that they are not physical beings. Hebrews 1.14 Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? They come to serve us. Like he will make his angels wings, his wings, his servants flames of fire. And so they come uh, to serve God's people. But these people worshipping angels spoke of there. What did the angel say to John in the Revelation when he fell down to worship? Do not do it. I'm a servant like you. And the angel that wants worship is no angel. <laughs> They're from the other side. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy. Don't chase angels. God sends an angel rejoice did I tell you Chrissy's story forgive me I'm only a partial witness to it it's part of my story too you, you know Chris Jones who came here with Sheila and his children for many years and back at the Quinter Hall as well uh, one of the early times that Chris came and, and what you need to understand about Chris is his dad is a Methodist minister he's retired now but he had quite often been mistreated by the people. And Chris, of course, had seen his dad being mistreated uh, and so had been wounded himself by the circumstance uh, that he'd seen his dad go through. And so he had a, a love-hate relationship with the church. He loved Jesus, he hated the church. <laughs> but now I am oversimplifying and if Chris you hear this forgive me for telling your story in, in, in my way so what happened Chris comes to the Quinter Hall to the Tartars and one day in the week perhaps Wednesday, Tuesday we were driving through Wrexham together and we saw a sign it said rugby match England versus Wales now if you know anything about me you know I love me rugby like rugby is so, it's, that's the sport. I like but any sport but rugby. And it was England-Wales. So we went to the box office at Wrexham uh, and we said, any tickets left? They said, yeah, it'll be all right. It was rugby league as it happened, so it's not as much followed, but I like rugby league. <laughs> no problem, I'm a northerner. Uh, so you know, I said to Chris, well, tomorrow night, Chris, we won't go to the meeting. Yeah, I'll get a ticket for the rugby match. They said we can pay on the gate, we'll just turn up. And Daniel, he's keen to go as well. So we come to the next night, it's I think Wednesday, and uh, we're having our evening meal about five o'clock. Daniel's bouncing. Come on, Dad, we've got to go to the rugby. Come on. Oh, yeah. But both Chris and I had a check in our spirit. Y you know what I mean? It just didn't seem right. Hmm. And, and, and oh, so in the end, said Chris, do you want to go? I don't want to go. I don't want to go either. We'll go to the meeting. <laughs> you know what I mean. You ever been to church? You know, we'll go to the meeting. Uh, I think David Wilson came that very night and said, Kevin, would you come into the team meeting? It's the first time I'd been asked into the team meeting. Um, we'd like you to lead the Bible, uh, not the Bible reading, the um, 
thing in the morning uh, prayers and would you speak of an evening later on first time I'd been asked to speak at the conference I could have been watching a rugby match we went into the meeting I'm playing my trumpet at the front at the end of the meeting Chris is walking round in the back in a dither I didn't notice Anne Marie noticed because blokes don't notice do they she said Kevin go and talk to Chris something's happened Chris what's happened I don't know if I should say. I, th- I said, Chris, we've known each other since school. We went through school together. Well, what's happened? He says, well, Kevin, I, 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 I'm sitting in the meeting, and at the front, there is a huge angel with his arm reached out to a feast, saying, come and eat. And that's why Chris came back so many years after. Come and eat. I didn't see an angel. I ain't seen an angel to this day. But if God needs to send you an angel, he'll send you an angel. It's in his hands, not in ours. They minister as we need, and perhaps some of you have angel stories as well. But don't seek them. Seek the Lord, and he will give you what he needs. <coughs> that was a detour, but I thought it was worth sharing. God, God is blessed. And the last detour Uh, and distraction that he mentions. The first was religion. The second is experience. The third one, self-denial. We call it ascetism. Religion by rules. It's the do not brigade. Verse 22, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You mustn't do that, you know. Christians don't do that. It's the negative side. Uh, And we've all been in that church, haven't we? Uh, I know it's partly a generation ago, but how many rules have come in my time in the church? The way you got to have your hair. This day, these days, we don't so much of it. You know, what you can wear and what you can't wear. Yeah? When I started coming to church, I had motorcycle boots, and I mean German jack boots. I had, <laughs> yeah, uh, with the socks rolled down over the top of them because I'd just got off my motorbike. Uh, and jeans with holes in them, a leather jacket and a wrangler with its arms cut off because I was a biker, all painted on the back. Nobody came over to me and said, oh, you can't wear that in church, son. I want to come back. You know, the rules here were about what you should eat. Jesus was very clear that uh, what we eat goes into our body and then out of our body. Food is not about spirituality. Some people think it is, but it isn't. Acts 15, 28 and 29. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. The food laws were not applied to the Gentile Christians and they were trying to apply them and I have heard it argued that because we don't obey the food laws it's okay not to obey the moral laws of God because you eat a prawn salad you can sin sexually they didn't put it quite so bluntly but that was the argument the food laws were abolished for the Gentile believers 
the moral laws of God still stand. There are rules for a Christian. They are there to help us live up to God, what God has made us to be. Um, if we're talking about ascetism, what about fasting? Is fasting part of the Christian faith? The answer is yes, it is. Uh, Jesus said, uh, when you fast, he didn't say if you fast, when you fast, put oil on your head. Uh, his friends or the disciples of John the Baptist came and said, uh, why aren't your disciples fasting? He said, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. So what's fasting? It's laying aside food and seeking God for a season. It could be for a meal, it could be a point in time. Uh, my friend Bill Barrett, uh, he recommended a three o'clock fast. He said he had his last tea time uh, meal the night before and then he would fast through to three o'clock the next day. If he was a coffee or a tea drinker, he would still drink tea or coffee because you go off then, it gives you a headache. And you're not going to be able to concentrate on prayer while you've got a headache. Uh, so that's what he would do. And then at three o'clock, he would have a piece of toast and a cup of tea to get him ready for the evening meal. Just one way into fasting. Of course, there are many other ways. <coughs> what is the problem with religion by rules? It doesn't work. It's an outward position, uh, imposition rather than an inward change. Verse 13, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The last thing Paul says, but he really takes it up in the next chapter, is to look up, to set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And that's what we will be moving on to. Um, but the text we took out was 6 and 7. Just as you receive Christ Jesus Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up with him and strengthened in the faith. We can strengthen our faith ourselves. How? Well, you know already. Romans 10.17 Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ, depending on which translation you take. And as we expose ourselves to God's word, as we hear and believe, we are built up. And Jude tells us that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit and build ourselves up in our most holy faith, Jude 20. And so as our prayers are guided by the Holy Spirit, as we pray in the Spirit, and I personally think tongues has something to do with that as well, but that's just me. Um, I think as we do pray in that way, that God himself builds us up. So the word and prayer are shown as two ways to build ourselves up. And of course, fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship. And it's as we meet deeply with God's people in fellowship, as we challenge each other, as we encourage each other, that we are built up. That's ways to build ourselves up. The word, the prayer, the fellowship. And then he gives something else and he says, an overflowing with thankfulness. 
Grumbling and moaning will stop your faith dead. And there's a lot to moan about. There really is. It's not an easy world we live in. But it says here, overflowing <coughs> with thankfulness. Are you thankful to the ones that you love? For your life with them? For the time you spend together? For the way you treat each other? Are you thankful to the ones you love? Do they know it? Have you told them? You can be as thankful as you like in your heart. If it doesn't come out through some action or word, <coughs> it won't be very helpful. I would give you three letters. TCP. Yeah, I saw an advert for TCP once. <coughs> it said banana, chocolate, strawberry. Three flavours we do not do in TCP. <laughs> but then underneath it says, but to bugs it's murder most foul. It is horrible stuff, isn't it? Time, compliments, presence. Not presents, <laughs> presence. <coughs> if you give somebody time, you're showing them love. If you pick something to be thankful for every day and you compliment, you're building up. If you are in somebody's presence, you are valuing them. And if you've got the money, you want to have presents to the end. You can have a TCPP, you know, because we should encourage those that we are part of their lives and they are part of our lives. <coughs> so what do you have to be thankful for, you might say to me? Well, if you put your faith in Christ, you're alive from the dead. Your sins are washed away. You've been forgiven. The um, list has been nailed to the cross. You are now living a life in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. You are free from empty religion. You've been brought into the mystery of Christ. You're rooted in the soil of heaven and you will live for eternity. All God asks is that you continue as you began. In humility, going back to the cross and putting Christ at the centre. Amen.